You are listening to Girovagando, the cycling podcast at the 2023 Giro d'Italia. Today we are in Naples. Well, that was that was very hot, wasn't it, Brian? Yeah. We're in Naples. As unless, um, in case anyone couldn't tell, we are in Naples. We're on a busy junction, but every junction is busy in Naples, isn't it, Brian? And we've we've really gone right into the guts of the city today, haven't we? Um, not where the press room was, but we've been on an adventure. You'll hear about that later, and indeed tomorrow. But Brian, have you enjoyed your day of Naples? Brian, I should say, is Brian Nygaard, the Il Barone, the Baron. I have had. A fantastic day. I've enjoyed wandering the streets of Naples with you. I had a brilliant lunch while you were working. Got to see quite a bit of, of Naples today and uh, yeah, I enjoyed the race. I think it was a beautiful uh, parkour today, stunning all the sights around here in this part of southern Italy. Yeah, I had a great day. What about you, Daniel? I've enjoyed it. I've seen much more of Naples than I have done in the past. Last year, and the Giro stage last year, was really my first time, my first brush with Naples, I think I'm right in saying. Were you not here when it started in Naples? No, I wasn't. That was 2013, wasn't it, when Mark Cavendish yeah. won the first stage. And today we ventured into the Quartieri Spagnoli. I mean, I'm not, I, I wouldn't claim that we had a sort of authentic 360 degree view of Naples and what Naples is and what it represents. But I certainly feel as though I understand it a little bit better today. And we've seen some contrast in Naples as well, haven't we? Where the press room is, is actually quite a posh area. I mean, we could have been in Paris or it could have been the Faubourg uh, Saint-Honoré, couldn't it? Yeah, very much so. Um, and not very far from there is the Quartieri Spagnoli, the, this iconic area with very narrow streets, which is completely bedecked, com- festooned with blue flags, light blue flags and pendants and bunting and everything else because of course Napoli won Lo Scudetto, the Italian Football League title just a week ago and as we thought it would be, the city is very much, well it's in the after party now isn't it? Yeah but I have a feeling that after party is going to last for a very long time, it could be years, it could be years, there's a couple of fellas saying hello to us. Uh, the minute I said party, they turned around. <laughs> and actually, from where I'm sitting, enjoying my drink here with you, there's uh, five or six kids playing football next to the church. It's, Brian, what's uh, the what's what's the aperitivo of choice in Naples? Because you might get you might get kicked out of the you might get hounded out of the city because what you're drinking is very much Venetian in origin or from the northeast, an aperol spritz. What are they drinking in Venice? Do you know? <clears throat> No, I don't know. I, I have a feeling I drink quite a lot, but uh, I, I don't know the, the specific aperitivo of choice here. We've got, a, we've got an hour or two to find out, haven't we? Yeah, I mean, I've, this might be a longer episode, so I can have another one. Brian, are you ready for today's tale of the tapper? I absolutely am. I just took a big gulp of my drink. Okay, well, let's take it away. It's time for the tale of the tapper. Yeah, thank you, Daniel. So, stage six from Napoli to Napoli, 162 kilometer scenic route around some of the most, yeah, some of the landmarks and some of the most iconic places here the Vesuvio, the Malfi, the Positano coast, uh, past Pompeii, 
around the back around the other side of the volcano along the coast. A breakaway formed quite early after various attacks, but it did mean that five riders eventually got a gap. So they went up the road while the the gap sort of climbed a little bit, but it was pretty clear from the beginning that a lot of teams had the interest in, in trying to keep this together for a sprint, and it actually ended up being a real thriller. Uh, eventually the breakaway was um, dialed down to two riders after so I would say a pretty good collaboration between those in the group, but it ended up being Simon Clark and Alessandro De Marchi who went out alone. They were clearly the strongest riders. Two young foals. Two a former mere, teammates, too. A mere 36 years um, each. Two former teammates. Uh, and, yeah, it, it just... So I've sort of jotted down what how the how the gap developed in the last part of the race. So if you bear with me. So at, at 20k to go... It was 1.36, at 10k to go it was 1 minute, at 4k, at 4K to go it was 35 seconds. Coming into the last kilometers, they had a 40 second gap to the peloton, which was led by uh, mainly Trek Sigafredo. But during the day, we've, we saw various teams take responsibility. I think also for, for making the stage a little bit harder, for keeping riders safe up front. But it also meant that quite a few sprinters got dropped along the way. If I can just rewind the the Valle di Cunzi, the climb we talked about with where Pantani crashed, I believe. Yeah, and Puffy the, the cat the, uh, met with his very unfortunate fate. Yeah, so that climb was uh, first guy over there was Francesco Gavazzi, and that was when the the lead was still pretty solid. I have to mention that there was a uh, Roglic had a puncture at the end. Uh, at, at one point also in the final uh, Garen Thomas dropped his chain but it was the, the real sort of story today was how close it was for Simon Clark and Alessandro Marca heartbreakingly close as I saw that you wrote because they only got caught with 300 meters to go the sprint was I think you couldn't say there was a, a the manuscript was written on for him but Mads Peterson finally got his timing right won the stage his third uh, Grand Tour stage in less than a year he finished the the Peter Slam, they call it, you know, the the, the feat of taking one stage in the Simon, all of the... Was Simon Clark also going for here, the, the Slam today as well? Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was. And uh, he joined that exclusive club. Uh, today he won in front of Jonathan Mila and Pascal Ackermann. So quite the drama, quite the a very exciting finale. I, I, I felt like it was kind of a stage where you went from the scenic postcard places, coming towards back into the grittier parts of Naples, the outskirts, and then with the very very nail-biting finish um, but eventually yeah Peterson got the win Brian any changes on any of the classifications general classification mountains classification uh, so in the in the in the overall classification no changes and neither in the two classifications for the jerseys the climbers and the points jersey Excellent, Brian. Well, you mentioned there the, the heartbreaking, heartrending scene that I was greeted with at the finish line. I was on the finish line and saw Simon Clark sort of limp over the line almost. And he came to a, a stop on the right hand side of the road and slumped over his handlebars, very close to where Alessandro Limarchi was as well. Clark looked to be well, very upset. I think he was in tears and inconsolable for a few minutes, actually. And the first person to console him was Alessandro De Marchi of course Be former beautiful teammate. scenes but also knowing those two riders they put in 
so much work. They were clearly the strongest in the breakaway. And I also had a feeling, I don't know if you agree with me, but had it come down to a two-man sprint, Simon Clark probably would have been the fastest guy. This was that his, was certainly what DeMarkey thought. Yeah, that was his chance to win. You know, he won in the in the Arenberg stage in the in the tour last year. He's won. He did. We won in one of the semi mountain uh, stages in the Vuelta. So this could have been a real sort of crowning moment for him, as it was eventually for Mas Peterson. And Israel um, uh, cycling, the cycling team. Uh, they could uh, Israel, Israel Premier Tech. I Israel think you Premier mean. Tech. Thank you very much. They could they, they could use a win like that. You know, it hasn't been a it hasn't been a phenomenal year for them. They're still chasing significant results. And yeah, Simon Clark is a guy who delivers. So he's great guy to having a breakaway. Technically perfect. He has a good nose for the finals. But yeah, it wasn't to be. Quite similar riders, aren't they, Dimarki and Simon Clark? And they both talked about how when they saw each other in the break, they knew they had a chance. Uh, incidentally, we're going to hear from them now, but what you won't hear, but Alessandro Marchi did mention to one of our Italian colleagues, was that he is increasingly slightly disappointed by the attitude of some younger riders in breakaways. He said that some of them are giving up too early. Um, you'll hear me put it to both riders that breakaways are succeeding very seldom at the moment in World Tour races. I think this was or two days ago at Lago Lachino, three days ago. That was the first time a breakaway has succeeded in a World Tour race this season. And the Marquis seems to suggest that one reason for that is people give up too easily, too early. And theirs was a lesson in persistence today, wasn't it, Brian? Should we hear from both of them? Let's hear from Alessandro Marquis and Simon Clark. Ah, uh, look, uh, in the end, it's one thing to arrive to win, but you still have to beat the guy you're with. And so at the end of the day, there's always going to be a little bit of cat and mouse there in the finish. And we knew it was going to be super close. And I tried to pull as long as I could. And I know Alessandro didn't come through that last kilometer, but that's the game we play. And uh, I have to say thanks to him, you know, because without him, I wouldn't have arrived even this close to, to a stage victory. So, uh, yeah, he, and we, we know each other very well, Alessandro and I, and we both, I know how strong he is. And once I was in the breakaway with him today, I knew that we could give it a big, big crack at, at staying away. Simon, brakes can't seem to get to the finish in World Tour races anymore. Whatever you do, I mean, how do you solve this puzzle? Ah, look, don't hate the player, hate the game. <laughs> uh, we just keep trying and, you know, the, the days, you know, do have, you know, we saw a, a breakaway victory on, on stage four and nearly won today and maybe again won tomorrow. So I don't know that uh, there's, there's no more breakaway victories. Just got to pick the right day. Alessandro, did you think about today when you thought you were going to contest the victory? Did you think about last autumn when, well, you weren't sure you were going to be a professional cyclist for much longer? Not, uh, not really, but uh, okay. Um, now that you, you told me this, I, I realized that eight months ago I was without a contract. No one was really believing. I was lucky that I found uh, a, good, uh, a good manager as uh, Brent Copeland, but uh, he was still looking for a old but a good guy and they offered me a contract and here we are. And we see breaks almost never go to the finish now in World Tour races. How big a performance did it take from you um, to do that today? Yeah, of course, uh, I mean, cycling is, is going quick and quick and uh, and breakaway are always more and more difficult, but um, 
you need to have really the the perfect day to to go to the finish. Perfect legs, perfect uh, teammates in the in the breakaway. Uh, a bit of luck. So it's true that it's getting difficult, more difficult every year. But uh, I mean, it's not a reason to, to don't try. Did you think that being younger than him was going to be to your advantage? You're about four weeks younger than him, or five weeks younger. Only than four, him. okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, no. I mean, then with with Simon, we are good friends, and uh, I'm sorry that in the end we didn't really play for for the result. But uh, again, that was my my chance to to play and gamble a bit. Well, Brian, traditionally at this point in the podcast, or around about this point in the podcast, we cross over to Not Watford and we have our cappuccino break with Lionel Burney. Um, however, this is a city that it's, is well known for brazenly disregarding rules and conventions and norms. Anarchy. And we might do that today. Not least because um, I've had a bit of a shocker today. I've had a few... Um, a few moments, some senior moments, even though I'm, not, I'm really not that senior. Um, Lionel, I, I'd fixed the time with Lionel, I completely forgot about the time difference. I thought it was a ruse on Lionel's part to extend the cappuccino curfew. Um, so I missed Lionel today. And I also, if you listen, if you listen to those interviews um, with Simon Clark and Alessandro De Marchi attentively, you will notice that I said that Alessandro Di Marchi was younger, or is younger, a few weeks than Simon Clark. It's actually the other way around. Really not that difficult. One of them was born no in one, May. No one in Naples is going to point no. fingers at you. No. One is born in May, the other one is born in July, and Clark is the younger man. Brian, I believe you had a question for me about the Yeah, so the on, those two, on those two guys, I, I can't help to think, and it's obviously hindsight, but I can't help to think that had they kept it going for a little bit longer and not looked at each other because it was you know they got caught at 300 meters and they had slowed down quite a bit and they were looking over the shoulder so they knew they were coming they were they could probably hear them breathing down their neck so i kind of oh had they only just you know did they start the tactical games a little too early is that all factored in though to the peloton's rhythms and speed and the way they approach the chase yeah i i i think so I mean, it, it looked, it was, you know, a, a, a moment of engineering brilliance, you know, of calculating how precise the, it was. But I, I also think if, if it was me, and that's probably not saying much because I would have been a horrible bike rider. Had I been in that position and I seen the line, I would have just went for it. Because why not? What's the worst that can happen? Someone who sacrificed, you know, all the energy to be in a breakaway me, then he can win, so be it. But I'd rather be second, I'd rather give it a go than you know, not see the other guy win. Mm. So, I, yeah, those, those guys are so seasoned. They're, they're, they're extremely smart, astute bike riders, so I'm, I'm sure I'm wrong. I just, I just have that feeling a little bit. It is interesting, isn't it, though, this theme of breakaways not, not succeeding in the biggest races. Um, we saw last year a bit of a pattern whereby there were times, particularly in Grand Tours, where one would have expected breakaways to be caught and it didn't happen Treviso was a notable example in the Giro d'Italia and it does feel as though over the last two or three years the rule book has been rewritten slightly about how if you are in a breakaway to make sure that you you stay away or you've got a chance of staying away and it feels as though there are more mind games involved now um, rather than it simply being a question of the number of watts in the peloton versus yeah. the number of watts yeah. in the in the break I mean, there's a lot of moving parts in that equation also because when you think of it, Trick, Trick Sigafreda have worked consistently very hard 
for uh, for Mass Peters to try and make this happen, and they basically brought a team more or less for that. And it's not always that say you have a, a sprinters team like in a more traditional sense that that they would actually be able to do that up against a relatively strong group. And you also have to you know to, tomorrow is a huge mountain stage. There's there's a lot of things that go into what actually determines the dynamics of the arm wrestle between the breakaway and the peloton. So yeah, I mean, it wasn't to be, but yeah, I would like to see a breakaway stay clear at some point this year. I'm sure we will eventually. Brian, we've jumped right ahead to the end of the race, the end of the day. We've already talked quite a lot about the breakaway. Let's, in spite of the lack of Paolo Cappuccino, let's go back in time. Let's go back to the start of today's stage. We haven't got a, a chiacchierata del giorno today, but we've got due chiacchierate, two two chinwags, um, with two tone crite who is one of the team doctors there, and Geert van Bont as well, one of the direct sportifs. And they were talking about Remco Evenepoel because we went to bed last night not knowing in what kind of shape Remco Evenepoel was going to come to the start today. Of course, he crashed yesterday. You heard, if you listened to us last night, there was some concern around the Sudal Quickstep bus last night. So here they both are greeting me and several of my colleagues outside the team bus in Napoli this morning. La chiacchierata del giorno. The team wag of the day. Okay, we'll wait for the official word from the team doctor about Remco's condition, but um, well, what can you tell us about the mood in the camp this morning and what, what you've seen of Remco this morning? No, I think the mood was, uh, was okay. He had, uh, he had a good night, so he slept well. He doesn't have so much stiffness, so I think he's uh, confident and the mood was good in the bus because it was uh, Josef journey his birthday so we sung a few times so I think the mood is pretty pretty good in the bus for the moment. I mean you know how crashes like the ones yesterday might affect a rider are you concerned about the next two days? Um, are we concerned yeah I think the most important thing is that his night was okay that he uh, they didn't bother him so much that he had a good uh, night sleep and then yeah we still have to wait when he's on the bike but for the moment he said he could uh, move everything pretty well and that's the most important thing for today. So we have to see how we come through the stage. And then tomorrow we know it's a very important stage. And then, of course, we have to see for tomorrow. But that's all our predictions. And uh, that's, what we, uh, that's what we have to see, of course. And the doctor gave a statement last night that was great for us. A lot of information. But we also looked at that and thought, well, that's a strange move if he really is hurt. Because obviously it tells all the other teams that he's hurt. Are they bluffing? Yeah, but I think everybody saw the crash. Eh? In the end, you cannot bluff uh, so much. It was a, a crash with a speed of maybe 60 kilometers an hour. So uh, he had some bruises. And um, But for us, was the most important thing, like I said, was that he came good through the night, that he didn't sleep three, four hours, and he had a pretty good night. And um, I think some other riders are involved as well. Yesterday, like uh, Vlasov heard uh, pretty bad. Also, Roglic pretty, hurts pretty bad. So they can tell the same story probably as us. And um, yeah, that would be the same thing. But like I said, I think the most important is that he had a good night's sleep. And just last thing, on a couple of days ago, UAE and others attacked you guys early in the stage and Van Wilder and Hurt, they had difficult days, I think. I mean, how do you feel generally about the climbing power in the team at the moment and the form that those guys are in? No, I think we are totally not uh, not concerned. I think we are, uh, we raced already before with the, this team. I think we raced in uh, Catalonia 
with pretty much this team and uh, we were one of the strongest teams so I think we all have very confident in the upcoming days for the climbs are coming well I think they were most of them had a, not the best day uh, but it was better to have a bad day that day and uh, have better days that uh, are coming. Hi Tone, so we saw you last night, you gave a statement, you told us what condition Remco was in last night and um, what can you tell us this morning about how he is? Oh, he had a, a good night, he slept well and uh, the treatments the osteopath and, and Kini did last uh, night, it stayed well, it was not that he was blocked again this morning. We will see on the bike how he reacts but I hope that he will be okay depends also a bit how the race develops um, but if the weather is like this it's already an advantage that uh, again crashes and thinks it's something he should avoid uh, he should avoid so you've seen millions of crashes in your career as a team doctor how do riders usually react to injuries like this usually first two days are important but if if he passes well today i think he will be okay for tomorrow it's uh, normally often they say the second day is the worst but uh, it's often also a mental mental question eh? and with remco you don't have this problem this mental problem he, 10 minutes after his crash he's already ready to fight again well brian we heard tone Kreit there the team doctor but of course we'd already heard from him last night hadn't we now Sudar Quickstep released a video statement last night in which Tone cried when it's quite a lot of detail about the nature of Remco's injuries. And I was quite surprised um, by that. And I think you were as well. Brian's laughing. Someone said he no, laughed. I, just, I, love, I love watching people driving here in Naples because it's, it's, sorry about that, I'm interrupting, but it's so aggressive. But everyone just looks so relaxed in, you know, whilst they're like cutting corners, people running across the street. And I just saw two guys like, gunning down towards the stop sign, both licking an ice cream. I love it. I'm staying in Naples, Daniel. <laughs> Brian, Brian, back to the question, back yes. to the question. Um, Tone Kreit's statement last night. Um, I, there, was, there was some sort of joking, Tom Foolery around the bus this morning. We were, we, we were saying to the press officer, we put it to the press officer that, you know, w they might as well have brought Remco out in a wheelchair last night. That they were, there seemed to be at least a lot of people suspected there was the attempt to make out the injury was worse or the injuries were worse than they actually. They should have are. sent him to touch uh, Maradona's golden, golden <laughs> yes. foot up yes. in the Spanish Quarter. But talk to us from, of course, you used to be a press officer, a spokesperson for teams. Talk to us about the wisdom or lack thereof in putting out a statement in which you go into quite a lot of detail yeah. about someone's injuries two days before a major mountain stage. Yeah, I'm also wondering what they're trying to establish. You know, we all, now that I'm working on the other side of the fence as a journalist, we all, we all want information. We all want to know as much as we possibly can. In general, when you're working in strategic communications, and I think this is an example of it, there's sort of two rules of thumb. You know, one is maximum disclosure, minimum delay, and that's that's definitely that's, what they went yes. for. And the other one, and there's, there's, there's an element of that as well in terms of it's the, pr the perspective of this, is that if you can't communicate facts, you communicate process. So you basically, uh, let's look and see, we'll investigate, we'll have a look, and we'll later on try and determine what the, what the facts are. I think in this case, if they're bluffing in terms of how, you know, the injuries that he sustained, how, how important it is, I'm, I'm not sure what they're trying to establish, but looking at the stage today, 
it was I think you could almost write the manuscript obviously not of the last 300 meters but in general this was this was not a stage where quick step the Sudal quick step were had no one expected them to take any responsibilities had had the crash happened today and with Grand Sasso looming tomorrow okay maybe they would maybe they would send a signal maybe they're trying to send a signal a day out that yeah you know he's a little bit weak mm. he, we might we're probably not going to take responsibility all the other we want the other teams to think that he's mm. not in a great condition after his crash so they can go out and try and and take responsibility and make the race hard typically who would make that call the press officer or the direct sportifs if it was uh, if it was very much a strategic decision relating to what um, yeah they so were going to do in the race I'm not trying to deconstruct their decision making here I, I'm just finding it hard what they to understand what they're trying to achieve but I think it would always and it should always be the team director the doctor the rider and the press officer because ultimately the, the doctors I, I in my opinion they have an obligation to speak the truth in general about or they have they control the disclosure of the rider and the rider has to be in agreement with that I ultimately think the sports director the sports director is only involved or potentially shouldn't be involved in things that have to do with sporting decisions so in, if I was in that position I, once the decision was made between the doctor the communications director the press officer and the rider you would let the sports director know and I'm not in favor of making in, in a race like this or any race you know where there's a lot of journalists because if you if you get caught in telling something that's not correct how you know and, and not that I can tell how how not that I can say how that would happen in this case you you lose a major chunk of, of credibility and it's not that easy to get that back again and it shouldn't be so yeah I, w I would leave the sports director out of the mix and I would I would leave with those people and then I, w I wouldn't make any tactical decisions about something like that I, I, I'd, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable doing it Brian Remco was certainly feeling well enough to do a few kick-ups on the podium today. Of course, we're in, as I already said, we're in Napoli, the, the city of the Italian football champions as of a week ago. And he, of course, is a former footballer. He also met Oleg Tinkov today. Oleg, Oleg Tinkov has been circulating in the last couple of days. A reported sighting now you're telling yesterday. Me. And he was at the Sudal Quickstep bus this morning, I believe. Not when I was there. I didn't see him. Or oh, he might have been at the finish, in fact. But he definitely I don't think visited he's, Remco um, today. Had his photo taken with Remco. And he said Remco is now his favourite rider. Um, bad news for our friend Fabian Cancellara, who was on the podcast a couple of days ago. Because yeah. Cancellara used to be Tinkoff's favourite rider. And Tinkoff has switched allegiances. He I, now says he's a Remco I'm, fan. I'm pretty sure he's not here to try and find a team to sponsor. Because after the, the invasion of Ukraine, his the stock of his bank dwindle and he's uh, he's now actually renounced his, his Russian citizenship I see him once in a while where we're going uh, on, uh, your neck of the, the woods yeah on Tuesday where we're, go we're close to my house he's definitely still riding his bike but what he's doing here God knows Brian, we're going to get, I promise you, we'll get to the sprint of your compatriot, Mads Pedersen, in just a minute. But talking of sprinters, let's remain in our time warp and let's hear what Mark Cavendish had to say this morning because he was another rider who crashed quite spectacularly at the finish yesterday. So I spoke to him in Piazza del Plebiscito this morning, asked him how he was feeling. Mark, how are you doing? You, I see you got plasters on your leg, but you look as though you're in pretty fine fettle. I'm okay, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I hopefully it's stuff I can ride off, really, you know. Yeah. Is it one where you have to maybe take it easy for a couple of days, or are you still looking at today as an opportunity? Ideally, I'd like to take it easy a couple of days, but there's not too many 
chances for sprinters. Um, so uh, we'll see. I don't know. This is, today's one of them days as well. That on paper it's a sprint, but modern cycling, you know. Um, looking at these Jayco guys, I'll probably go full on the first climb, and there'll be a long day for us. How were the legs before you crashed yesterday? Yeah, they're super good actually. Uh, I felt good. Team did an incredible job. Uh, you know, real field dialed here with a, a sprint team. We haven't got train like you expect to see in, in all your cycling comic books and that. But uh, we've got a good team that puts me in a good position, you know. And, so I'm real motivated. Um, but I say again, like, of course I want results here, but it's still kind of preparation for, for July. So uh, we take what we can, try our best, and uh, hopefully just get through it. Bad news, Brian, for Mark Cavendish fans. Um, I saw him after the finish line today, and he crashed again today, and he was a little bit blooded, um, uh, certainly up his leg. I don't think there was too much alarm, but we saw him fighting a little bit, didn't we, today? At one stage, we were a little bit worried. He had three or four um, Astana riders around him. I don't think they were ever in grave danger as far as the time limit is concerned, but of course, they'll be more concerned about tomorrow. But at least he's in good spirits, we heard there, and he feels he's, he's in good form. That's good to hear. Tomorrow is going to be very, very difficult for him, extremely. And also, it's it's a long stage. There's a lot of climbing. He he will need to be very concerned about the time limit. So yeah, let's let's keep our fingers crossed. I'm, I I have a feeling, but you know him better than I do. I have a feeling that he's here to race as much as possible. But he's really looking to the tour. Well, yeah, that's what he said. Um, that his main focus is, of course, the Tour de France. But he's smiling. He seems to be happy here and there are some opportunities over the next week or so not too many but there are some if he gets through tomorrow brian let's get to mats pedersen now uh, i want to get your opinion on something fernando gaviria is, is celebrated particularly when he's on form as he has been in the last few weeks for these long sprints that he does i don't know how far out he went today maybe 500 meters when it goes wrong he gives everyone behind him a perfect lead out and that's kind of what happened today yeah it is actually I have a feeling that Mass Peterson also chose his wheel for that reason. And um, we spoke about earlier that this is, phrasing uh, from the start of Giro, this is not a, the, the deepest uh, sprinter's Giro in terms of who's here. And that also reflects on the, on the teams that are able to take responsibilities. Mass Peterson had, had, had messed up his timing the other day. And, and I can say that because he, 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 he very much said that himself. But today he got it right. And, and today also it's, I mean, this is a rider who, who's won a lot of bike races. I think there was, a, there was a, a, a sigh of relief also because if, you know, he could, he could finish this year without winning a stage. He could also finish this year winning four or five stages. But getting that one today was immensely important. So I, I think he was just trying to like be, not take any chances and basically staying in the wheel and not opening too early. Usually actually has a tendency to open quite early, but, but not today. It reminded me a lot of the stage that he won in the Vuelta last year, the last one he won. I think it was the day after Primoz Roglic crashed out. But Brian, you were in the press conference as well. Tell us about, well, I imagine he was in jubilant mood. Yeah, he was. He was very thankful. I mean, they all are when they win, aren't they? But he was very thankful for the work they, they'd put in. But I think that's also a reflection of the work they'd done since Basically, every stage where you had a possibility, they've been they've been borrowing borrowing themselves themselves to really make this possible for him. 
we saw that also on the stage with Matthews one day they, they they put in together with Jaco Aula they, they put in the bulk of the work mm. so and I, and I think now that that's sort of that the relief of having had that stage win having completed that grand slam that is to win three sta uh, stage in East Grand Tour with it in less than a year which is it's incredible you know and it's just a uh, it's 30 years since a Danish rider did that, Jesper Skibu, in 1993. And he, he, he's very much aware of all these things. And he's, uh, I think he's here to do more, but I also, you know, he's definitely also eyeing the tour, the world championships and everything. So also at some point, I think he also has to, he'll, he'll have to sort of not necessarily go after every single possibility, but if it shows up, he'll he'll probably be there. But yeah, it's it's been a hard opening f uh, for the for his team of this year. They worked a lot, but now they they have the reward. I would single out Balka Molomar for particular praise. He did a crucial turn, uh, sort of a kilometer to go around about there, yeah. or lost yeah. couple of kilometers. Yeah. And uh, I'm just curious as well. Jaco Lula, they were around the front. I don't know how much they did to obstruct the chase and whether they could have made any difference there or not. I don't oh. know what you think. Where we're, where we're sitting now, and the wind has picked up a little bit, but there, w there was a quite a windy run-in as well. Mm. So everyone really had to time their, their mm. sprint quite well. There was a sprint that I think was won by timing, not by strength. Because they were all pretty equal. It was a close sprint. Not you know, If you compare it to the stage win that Jonathan Milan got, he was... It was yeah, out, clear, clear winner, but Matt Peterson wasn't that clear today. There was some constructive criticism on Italian Eurosport of Jonathan Milan's gear choice that he was too agile, as they say in Italian. Yeah, it looked like it. it looked yeah, like he was missing the the meters that uh, a, a heavier transmission would give him. He was also him. very, very angry with Simone Velasco after the finish, and there was no boiled egg involved. It was because. Supposedly, Velasco had almost caused Milan to crash on numerous occasions today, so at least Milan thought. The Cycling Podcast at the 2023 Giro d'Italia is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Science in Sport supports the Cycling Podcast on the road at the Giro d'Italia and they supply the Ineos Grenadiers team as well. And I asked Pavel Sivakov what his attitude to coffee is when in Italy. And well, I think I can hear and feel Daniel Freiber shaking his head in disapproval at this one. Depend on the time of the day. In the morning, I really like a flat white, which is not an Italian thing, but... Yeah, like cappuccino or flat white, uh, just with some milk is great. Um, but if for proper flavor, I think a filter coffee is, is really nice. I really like a filter coffee. Always bring my AeroPress with me on races everywhere, basically. And coffee after 11. If you're on the ride, I think, yeah. Actually, we did have a cappuccino after 11 today. So, yeah, I think if you're on the ride, it's acceptable. Maybe after, I would say after lunch, then it's like, depending what time you have lunch, if you have lunch, yeah. I think after lunch is, a, is not, I don't like to have a cappuccino after lunch. A flat white in Italy, controversial indeed. Now, coffee can give you a little boost, can't it? But if you want to try the Go Energy and Caffeine Gels, they improve alertness, reduce fatigue, helping you to go faster and further for longer. Go to scienceinsport.com for the full range. Oh, Brian. 
we're on the oh, Via Emanuele de Deo within the Maradona Mural Muralis. Uh, yep. is just up the hill but in the meantime we've seen a sign written on the back of a cardboard box Viene a assaggiare la bomba di Maradona come and taste the bomba di Maradona it's their speciality no idea what it is should we go inside and get one? absolutely how can you not? salve una bomba di Maradona la possiamo ordinare non sappiamo non abbiamo la minima idea di cosa allora, vedi questa farcitura così? Sì. Sa anche questa qua. Questa è la bomba di Maradona, però alla fine è un il tipico casatiello napoletano. And connection with this feature. And I would say if you were partying all day and you wake up the next morning and you aren't feeling, you feel a bit scruffy, this is really what you want. Substantial, there's all kinds of salami, there's cheese. I should have asked whether they did a vegan version. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I don't really think you, you don't really fit in here, do you? So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a substantial. I, 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 and also I would not be surprised that this would basically be the calorie count of the first 50, first kilom- the first 50 kilometers of a hard bike race. Poi io mi ricordo solo Pantani, eh, come ciclista famoso. Sì. Nibali? Non c'è qualcosa? Eh, no. no. <ride> no. Okay. Well, Brian, that was as shortly after the finish with our Bomba Maradona, which I've only just disposed of. I'm not sure we described it that well in the kilometer zero the kilometer zero will be released tomorrow um it is effectively it's going to be on the friends feed so sign up for that if you haven't already and you'd like to listen to the naples special we're going to do tomorrow an awful lot of well we think pretty good content from our day in naples there's lots of chiro in there there's john foot there's as i say Maradona. Um, Mar- well, lots an awful lot of Maradona. And and there is the Bomba Maradona, which was this kind of field bread roll of all sorts of alimentary, uh, sort of food detritus, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, it was like my worst culinary nightmare. It was eggs, it was meat, it was everything you could think of that might cause me to wince, stuffed Yet into a Yet you carried it around until... <laughs> Yes. Yeah, yeah. The, the remains of the day. Yes. Brian, we're moving out of Campania and we're slowly inching out of the south. Things are going to start to change. They're going to start to feel a little bit different over the next couple of days. We're going back into Abruzzo where we started the Giro tomorrow. And well, on that note, let's talk about tomorrow's stage. La tappa di domani e la cena di ieri. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's dinner. Brian, yesterday's dinner. Yesterday's dinner. I feel like I, I want to do a, a prelude to the dinner because Go we, on. our GPS let us down. Oh yeah. Yesterday, so we actually ended up in. We the almost exact, ended up in Sicily. We almost ended up. Yeah, well, did we did end up the exact opposite of where we wanted to be? But uh, we made it. We got there, and um, luckily there was a restaurant right next door to where we was um, where we were staying in Cava dei Tereni, and. Um, I'm not sure what you had something quite 
indistinguishable. There's a lot of fried food in this part of the world, um, a bafflingly large number of fried specialities, and this was kind of what this was, wasn't it? It was almost like a, uh, it looks like a big fish finger. It does. Everything looks like a big, a big fish finger. A big fish finger crossed with an arancino with sort of macaroni inside, um, with pasta inside. That should be the original much, bomba, if anything. Then. Yeah, it was much more appetizing than it sounds. And I also had pakiri, which are very large pasta tubes with a tomato sauce thereafter. And that was pretty good. Line, well, I had, a, I had, a, had the no-nonsense dinner. I had a steak, a salad, a really nice bottle of taurasi local wine from the area and then I had a, a, a homemade limoncello which is also very local to here they rode past the the home of limoncello I have to you know be, be careful what I say now and, and if a friend, Sorrento. If, yeah, if, uh, if, if Alberto Grande is listening then I you know, apologize beforehand but Sorrento is the home of, of Limoncello. Also the home of Carmine Castellano, the former Giro d'Italia director, who was in the press room yeah, this I afternoon, was posing for pictures with Ciro, would you believe? Yeah, that was quite a, a beautiful moment. I've, if you go back and look, uh, for instance, if you look at the winning photo of Sulla on uh, Lago Lacino, you'll see him in the car right behind him. He's like an iconic and uh, such an, a gentle giant, avocado. You know, he was 20 years a lawyer, and then he was instrumental in bringing the Giro to the south. He took over from Vincenzo Torione, uh, a very Torriani, sorry, a very hard bargaining director of the Giro. And, and Camino Castellano was a, a gentle giant. And I remember the year when when uh, Michael Matthews won his first stage in the Giro, he came to uh, to celebrate and uh, sorry, he came to pay his respect and. And then I remember Matthew said, I, "Who is this guy? I can just tell he's someone really nice." And that's the that's the air around Camino Castellano. Great to see him, 86 years old. 86 wow. years old. Brian, tomorrow's stage. Maybe Campo it's the limoncello keeping him alive. Yes. <laughs> Maybe we should drink more of it. Brian, um, Campo Imperatore, Gran Sasso d'Italia. Yes. So tomorrow, stage seven from Capua to Gran Sasso d'Italia, Campo Imperatore, 218 kilometers long. The first big mountain stage, and that's what capital BIG, with more than 4,000 meters of climbing. The road starts to rise after the first 60 kilometers, and after a short descent and the first intermediate sprint, the race passes Category 2 climb of Roccarasso. Then, after a very long descent to the second intermediate sprint, the race heads towards Gran Sasso, where the climbing is basically set in two sections. First, with the Category 2 climb to Calascio, and then after six kilometers of false flat, the race tackles the whooping 26-kilometer climb to Gran Sasso. It's a very, very climb, uh, climb in terms of difficulties, but there are the last four kilometers are the hardest, and they reach up to an average of 8.2% to the finish in 2,130 uh, 2, meters of altitude. In RCS's own ranking in the Garibaldi in the race book, there are two other mountain stages with four out of five, where stars, tomorrow's a four-star, but there are actually four other stages with five out of five, but very interesting stage tomorrow, a lot of climbing, and often, I don't know if you agree with me, the first big mountain stage, you, you, you don't necessarily see who's going to win the Giro, but you will. Is it? The cliche Kong. Giro bingo. Yeah, <laughs> well, you will definitely see who won't. Yes, Brian, yes. Indeed, indeed. Brian, on, after 91 kilometers of tomorrow's stage, I noticed we're going through Castel di Sangro. Now, long-time listeners of the podcast will remember that name, probably. Um, our late 
and uh, very much miss friend Richard Moore and I did uh, Kilometer Zero in Castel di Sangro a couple of years ago based on the book The Miracle of Castel di Sangro by Joe McGuinness about uh, essentially a small town football team that made it all the way through the Italian divisions and well, what a, an extraordinary journey that was and we documented in this Kilometer Zero from 2021 which is available online. Um, you mentioned the the climb to Campo Imperatore it's uh, as you say a high altitude finish it's really beautiful up there I mean you'll see the TV pictures tomorrow they call it the Little Tibet and the plateau at the top it's just underneath the highest point in the Apennines which is the Corno Grande and 2912 meters high and as you say it's it's tended to cause a lot of damage this climb famous for Marco Pantani's victory there in 1999 he was flanked on either side by walls of snow on that occasion we think there's going to be a lot of snow up there tomorrow. We, well, as I already said, we're sort of circling back to Abruzzo, the Giro, starting in Abruzzo. When we were in that part of the world just a few days ago, there was a, we were surprised how much snow there was, weren't we? Yeah, on the on the Maya, uh, the Maella, the yeah. Maella, there was yeah unusually a lot of snow and for this time of year. So it should be interesting tomorrow. And of course, the Giro was there five years ago. 2018. The is winner that five years ago already. It is. The winner that day was Simon Yates. In second place was Thibaut Pino. And I actually spoke to Pino this morning. I think we can hear from him. I will translate. And um, well, he said it's a very long climb and he's got good memories. Um, it's not the hardest but he thinks that people will lose time. Um, and particularly, if, if anyone's in trouble early on the climb, they will lose an awful lot of time. You could lose the Giro tomorrow. We'll understand who might lose the Giro. Not I mean, if Pino says, I have absolutely no problem with there the Giro go. bingo. There you go. It's just um, me and Pino, you know. I was curious about Thibaut because he is in the the blue jersey, very apt in Napoli today. He's in the King of the Mountains jersey. And I wondered, whether he's changed his goals, his aims for this Giro d'Italia, because he talked earlier in the year about wanting to compete with the best climbers, not wanting to get in these soft breakaways and get a stage win that way. So I said, how are things? What's the lie of the land at the moment? And he said, well, I've got three goals, basically, King of the Mountain stages and the GC. The first, the first goal and the, the goal until the end of this week, certainly, is the GC. And then on Sunday night, after the time triumph, they'll reassess. I also, of course, we know that Thibaut Pino is a massive football fan. I asked him about um, being in the home of Napoli, the, the home, the adopted home of Maradona. He said, well, it's a passionate city, a football city. He's really happy to be here. He said, if the, the weather had been as bad today as it was over the last few days, then he'd gladly be doing some calcio turismo football tourism today with us that's effectively what we did brian well we'd love to do a bit of a stroll through naples with Thibaut pino yeah, oh next God, year yeah scenes brian uh it's a big day it is it is a big day on general classification we're going to understand a lot of things after tomorrow's stage such finish. such as well, well i'm gonna read this is this is what i believe is the virtual gc um, no disrespect to the, the sort of interlopers. There are a few interlopers. Um, I don't want to say that Andreas Lechnerson hasn't got a chance of winning the Giro d'Italia. But well, this, I'll, I'll, I can say then. Well, you say it then. As I see it, this is the top ten at the moment. We've got Remco first, Almeida second, 32 seconds down. Roglic, 44 seconds down. 
Geraint Thomas fourth, 58 seconds down. Vlazov, 58 seconds down. Theo Gegenhardt, one minute, two seconds down. Caruso, one minute and 31 seconds down. Dunbar, one minute, 47 seconds down. Sivakov, 155, and Haig, 158. And then we've got Pino himself, Jay Vine, and Hugh Carthy, who are all just over two minutes down. So, Brian, of those riders, who are the big winners of the prelude to the serious business? I think Joao Almeida is a bit of a winner of this first phase of the Giro d'Italia. Yeah, I agree. I mean, all of them have had setbacks for various reasons. You know, they, all of them did a, obviously a good time trial, but there's been crashes, there's been punctures. You know, we saw Garen Thomas chasing hard back today. Joao Almeida had his issues. They've all Rock, had... Rock had another puncture Yeah, today. Rock had a puncture and... Uh, Tao Gegenhard uh, lost some time in the split uh, a couple of days ago. So, but it's still when it, when it's still within a minute, it's not, in my opinion, it's not the time difference. It's their how how well have they gone through the first week? Are they unscathed? Mm. Do they have the uh, still a strong team to support them? We still we have to look at those things and because they think the time difference is. They, they, does, they don't really tell the full story of, of where they are right now. There's, there's so many other elements to that. Do you know what? None of them have lost any men, which is good news for all of them, considering we've had a couple of yeah. rainy days. Yeah. But it's also, when you look at the dynamics of the teams of the the main favourites, take Remco, Evanapol, it's all for him. Ineos could be either Garen Thomas or, or Togignard. I, I'm pretty convinced that the UAE is all for Almeida, but they still have a few other guys who are who are up there. So that the dynamics of those teams are are quite different. And who, who's who is the rider, for instance, for Ineos? That maybe we'll know more about that tomorrow. Brian, we don't usually make predictions about the following stage, the following day's stage, but I'm going to make one tomorrow for tomorrow. I'm going to tip EF Education first, Ben Healy, because I think he's on great form. And well, I spoke to him this morning. He tried to get in a break a couple of days ago on the state of Lago Lacino, didn't succeed. And well, he, he reflected on that and what he did wrong. And well, you're going to hear now the conclusion that he drew. Here's Ben Healy talking to me in Naples this morning. And well, you, we saw you had this fantastic form in the Ardennes. You looked really strong a couple of days ago as well. You tried to get into the break a lot of times. There were even some people who watched it and said, well, maybe you should have tried maybe five times instead of ten and gone harder. I mean, on reflection, looking back at the start of that stage, how do you feel about it? Yeah, 100%. Maybe I was a bit stupid, really. Um, but, yeah, I, it's, it's something that I always, like, kind of do, you know. Uh, and, yeah, I just need to be a bit more precise where, where I use my legs and uh, put it... Yeah, put the effort into a good, good, good place and uh, try and get that, that, that one move that sticks, you know. Is that that day the kind of profile that it was, the, the fact that you were trying to get into a break, is that kind of typical of what's going to be your strategy at this race? On stages like the one the other day, that's where you're going to be looking. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, it's, it's not only that sort of stage, you know, it's something that's, that's kind of hilly and just a hard day, and, and that's, that's what I like. And um, Giro d'Italia generally, is it a race that you watched a lot when you were growing up? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm pretty passionate about cycling and uh, yeah, I watched a lot of bike racing when I was growing up. What was the first Giro you can remember? Uh, I think when Croy's like uh, crashed into the snow. I can't remember what year that was. 16. Yeah, that's, that's, that's like one vivid memory I have, I guess. So. 
So Brian, we are off into the Neapolitan night. We've had our dose of Napolitanita for this year. Who knows whether we'll be back. Can I have more? Next year. Um, I think there's a long-term deal between Jira and Naples. I think this is part of a multi-year deal. The first year being last year. And so we might be back here every year. Looking forward to it. We'll be back tomorrow um, from Campo Imperatore, Gran Sasso d'Italia. As I said, you can hear all about our adventures in Naples in the Kilometer Zero that will go out at some point tomorrow. To conclude today, we're going to play out with John Foote, our friend, the uh, head of modern history, the professor of modern history at the University of Bristol, author of lots of books, including Pedalare, Pedalare, Calcio. Um, and several about the history of Italy. And John is going to tell us a little bit about why Campo Imperatore is significant, not just in cycling and the Giro d'Italia, but in Italian history. Here's John Foote and Brian. I'm going to bid you buonasera. Well, I'll be seeing you later. I'll be, I'll be seeing It'd you. It'd be awkward if you, were just, <laughs> yeah. if you just walked away. But buonasera to you, Daniel. Buonasera. So Mussolini, Benito Mussolini, going back, sort of goes into the Second World War alongside Hitler in 1940, June 1940. It goes very, very badly, almost from day one. And by 1943, everything is falling apart. And to save themselves, a number of fellow fascists and the king get rid of Mussolini, arrest him, which is very weird because he was dictator, uh, and take it. They didn't really know what to do with him. So they kind of he gets imprisoned, kind of imprisoned, not really a prison. He gets put on top of a mountain in a hotel uh, in this place called Camper in Vittoria, which is a kind of sort of plain, I've never been there, but a pianura, a kind of plain. So he gets taken there and, and, and arrested, but no one really wants him. The, the king by that time has fled uh, south and he doesn't take Mussolini with him. The king has fled Rome and Rome's been occupied by the Nazis. And the Nazis famously spring... Um, Mussolini from Campo Mentorio was this kind of daring mission involving planes. But in fact, a few people die during that mission. It's, it's not bloodless. So he's, he's kind of saved, but obviously he's humiliated by that point. He's been arrested by his own kind of ally and, and you know, has lost all his power. He gets taken to Germany. Hitler kind of gives him a dressing down. And then he gets brought back and installed in a kind of puppet government, which I think we talked about before mm. in the in the north of Italy, called officially the Italian Social Republic, which is the last throes of Italian fascism, very violent, very anti-Semitic, very corrupt, and which people to, to kind of belittle it. But then Mussolini comes back after being sprung from Campo Mettore, which is also, I think, filmed and certainly photographed this incredible mission. It's sort of if you're into kind of adventure films, you might be into that kind of thing. He's brought back, the, um, and and then in '45 it again all falls apart as the Allies go north. He's arrested, dressed as a German soldier, not particularly heroic, and as we said before, shot by communist partisans and strung up by his feet in Milan in uh, in uh, April 1945. So that that Camper and Pretoria is a kind of false saving of him, and he's really a, such a he's already a junior partner in that alliance, but by then he's kind of just a puppet. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney.